Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and it's great to have you here with us today. Like many of you, I sometimes spend time scrolling through Instagram, and occasionally a salon design will stop me in my tracks, as was the case with Salon Ruggieri, based in New York City. Over the last few years, every time I see an image they posted, it was always an image of a beautifully put together and very stylish salon space that broke the cookie cutter salon design mold that so many salons have. And it gave you a peek into the world and the style of the salon owners. It always made me just want to go and hang out there because you knew it would be a great experience and a luxury treat for the senses as well as great hair. So my guest on today's podcast is Greg Ruggieri and his husband, Craig Longhurst, from Salon Ruggieri in New York. In today's podcast, we will discuss the client experience, the importance of paying attention to detail, the meaning of style, and so much more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Greg Ruggieri and Craig Longhurst. Hey, Anthony, thanks for having us. Thank you, Anthony. It's welcome to be here. Uh, it's, a, it's a real pleasure. I have been looking at your Instagram feed um, over the years, and I constantly are, uh, you know, seduced to stop and look at this beautiful salon interiors and all the, uh, all the things that go with that, because I just know that it would be a fantastic experience and just a sort of place that you'd want to hang out. But we'll, we'll dig into, into more of that in a minute. So before we get started, um, can I just get you to sort of do a, a short, you know, 60-second, two-minute introduction of uh, who is Greg Ruggieri and Craig Longhurst? It's a funny thing asking a hairdresser to do a short introduction. I don't think that would ever work. Um, my name is Greg Ruggieri. Uh, I've been he- uh, hairdressing for 30 years, um, and both Craig and I moved to New York uh, in 2010 uh, to fulfil and chase a lifelong dream of moving to New York and setting up a business. And here we are, 2022, I believe it is, yes. Um, and, yeah, having a great time. What about you, Mr Longhurst? Um, yeah, so um, I'm in Shirazana and um, I've been in the industry even longer. <laughs> and um, we, uh, we started our journey together uh, over 25 years ago as partners, but we ended up becoming business partners in 2005 in Sydney. And um, uh, I got involved in the business more heavily than I anticipated when you and his manager <laughs> suddenly quit just before Christmas and I had to run the front desk what I thought was going to be a couple of months and turned out to be much longer than that. But it did me well when we moved to New York and I was his full-time manager and business partner. So, yeah, right. sometimes I, things are meant to happen. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I believe that about everything. Okay, so let me just go back to the beginning, Greg. You're the, the hairdresser. I'm always curious about people's story. Like how did you 
get into hairdressing? As a, as a young man, one day you decided that was what you wanted to pursue. What's the story around that? That's a very funny one, actually. If I can be completely honest, it was actually to piss my father off. <laughs> uh, my mother and my two sisters are hairdressers. Uh, my mother used to work in um, a city salon and was would always talk about how luxurious it was and how there was you would walk in and there'd be these curtains around the area so no one could actually see what you were doing and you know it just made this whole thing look really glamorous and then my sisters um, one after the other went and worked in a salon in suburban Sydney and I remember looking at them going oh why would you want to work in that for like it's just it was a very strange space. And I thought, no, if I, if I was to ever do this, I would want to be somewhere really stylish. Anyway, um, I got caught jigging school one day. Um, with surfboard in hand, my mother jumped on the train saying, all right, Greg, come on, you're going to come and work with me. So I went into work and she said, now you're going to have to find a job or um, go back to school and do your HSC. And I thought, right, um, what, what is it that I want to do? Well, I want to piss my father off. Um, so I am going to get a job working on Oxford Street, Paddington, because he caught my sisters, uh, I think, the week before um, in Oxford Street, going to Oxford Street, uh, Paddington Markets there, and said the only people who frequent that place, frequent that area, drug addicts, prostitutes, and homosexuals. And, you know, if I catch you in that area again, you're, you're, you're grounded. And I thought, right, that's where I'm going to work. And um, <laughs> sure enough, I saw in the paper this salon. Um, I went, got an interview, uh, got the job straight away. At this point, I am 14. Um, wow. And I think it was August. I just finished doing my school certificate and um, they wanted me to start straight away and I couldn't. Um, I had to stay in school for at least another two months. And so I worked there on the weekends and ended up, I didn't really want to do it. I was only doing it to get out of school, but ended up really loving it. And ironically, the salon that I worked at was a salon my older sister was a model and she had actually done a sun silk commercial in there so knew the salon well and um yeah i think by the time i started full-time in december uh sorry november of that year 1990 um just had the best time i knew this was the chosen profession it was the most bizarre thing i've never felt like i really belonged anywhere than right there at that moment it was very strange okay so you did a you know traditional apprenticeship training in Sydney. Did you did you own a salon in Sydney? Uh, yes. So I um, uh, I did a four year training program uh, apprenticeship in Australia. I left there and worked uh, in another two salons, three salons. The last salon that I worked at. Um, it was actually the salon that I hated the most. And for anyone listening um, from Australia, you know that, that company that I'm talking about. We won't name names. <laughs> but it was actually um, very interesting because I came back to the industry. Uh, I had six months off from a previous employer and I just I was ready to throw the whole thing in. Something had happened and it was just not a very bad, a very good experience. So when I went back into hair, I completely changed the way that I was looking at doing hairdressing before. I was what was known as a commercial colorist. So I used to do hair color for um, magazines, editorial, advertising, TV, movies, all that kind of crap. And so when I came back, I realized I needed to change the way I was thinking in order to survive and to evolve because I did not want to be where my peers were at that point. Um, they were 
slowly aging and I was getting the work that they used to get and I was watching them getting very bitter over the fact that I was getting all the new work and they were just getting the scraps. So they were Mm. starting to get very expensive and I was very cheap. So I would get all the work over them. And I thought, I don't actually want to be that person. I need to build, build a future in this industry. So that's kind of when I went to this one company and I watched how they were working and it was really interesting. I never, I really didn't enjoy working there at all, yet it was the salon I stayed at for the longest period of my life. And you learned the most. And I learned the most. It was kind of crazy. It actually set so many foundations to where I am today that I actually, I wouldn't be where I am today had I not had that experience at that salon. Okay. Um, and then my, at this point, my father, I think, had been very ill on and off for maybe 10 years. And Craig and I had always talked about moving to New York. It was one of the very first things we talked about when we first met. And after my father passed away, um, and subsequently Craig's parents also passed away within a six-month period, we decided we were going to move to New York, you know, follow our dreams. And then my sister um, announced that she was pregnant. Well, that, that just basically cemented that idea. We weren't going to go. We were going to um, be uncles and, you know, stay in Sydney. So that's when we set up the salon um, in Sydney in 2005. We bought a, we bought, we, we just bought a terrace house on a corner in Redfern and um, it was zoned work live. And the intention was for me to have my design business on the ground floor with the shop okay. for vintage furniture. And then uh, Greg, we decided it was time for Greg to open his own salon. And we said to the accountant, you know, we need to talk about finding a space for Greg. And he said, well, I don't know, what are, you, what are you talking about? You own that building on the corner. Why don't you just put the salon downstairs and put Craig's office upstairs? I'm like, oh, that's a clever idea. And so that's how it happened. We we had the space and so we, I designed the interior and, and we'd always talked about we wanted to be exceptional and glamorous and, and almost secretive, like no signage you couldn't see in yeah. what was going on in there, you know, make it, but also make it very personal. And so, you know, we had crockery, Masoni crockery that matched the Masoni rug and we wanted everything to be just, you know, beyond. Just right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we had menus of drinks and everything was organic and we had, you know, biscottis handmade for cups of tea and coffee Look up, like we had to do full-on services for tea with matching jugs and teapots. And, um, and so everything had to be just right. Music and magazines, the best magazines from around the world mm-hmm. in those days because that's what everyone did. And, and then we, in the interior we fitted out with, you know, the stuff that I, well, we collected from our travels around the world and going to auctions and things, artwork and porcelains. And, um, and what was interesting and still continues to this day is that once we'd done it, I was upstairs working. Clients were so impressed by the interior, they asked to use the interior and then Greg gave them my card and I'd get projects from it. So that still happens today now back in New York City. Good. Well, we're going to talk more about that. Now, going from a successful salon in Sydney then, um, and once you open your own business and you alluded to the fact that you owned the property and now you're, you know, Uncle Craig and Uncle Greg, uh, <laughs> th- th- there's quite a lot of, there's a, quite a lot to anchor you where you were. Yeah. But yes. then you decided, no, New York is where it's going to happen. So, yeah. So I mean, it, it is, it is a very interesting thing. Craig and I are very much about signs, right? So you can go throughout your life, um, and there'll be little things that happen and you either ignore them or you place some importance on them. So we went to New York after um, 
uh, after opening up the salon and funny story, I unfortunately broke my arm and um, it was actually my left arm and I was kind of screwed. Um, we'd just gone on a major shopping spree and um, <laughs> I'd broken my arm and I was in the hospital. I was like, shit, shit, shit. I can't move my arm. I'm really, we're, you know, we're screwed. This is the worst possible thing. Um, come back to Australia and I ended up going to have acupuncture. And whilst I was having the acupuncture for my arm, I just had this realisation that as great as it was having the business in Sydney, if, if ever anyone knows anything about Sydney, it's a very hard thing to maintain. Um, I always think you can be a big fish in a, in a small pond, which is what Sydney was, or you could be mm. a small fish in a big pond, which is what New York was. So Sydney was very much at that point, you could be, um, you know, miss popularity for maybe two or three weeks and then the new thing would come along and then you'd be dropped yeah. like a hot, hot potatoes yeah. and, you know, and it was just really tiring and really shallow and really nothing that I really wanted. You know, I didn't really want to invest in that. We, we had put so much into that business only to, you know, kind of have that happen to you. And I thought, wow, this is not really satisfying at all. Like mm -hmm. I don't really want to pursue this. Um, and whilst I was having my acupuncture, we kind of were both going, okay, all right, well, I feel like this is telling us something. We really need to, you know, sort this out. And Craig was thinking, oh, maybe he wants to give it up. Maybe he wants to quit. But we ended up kind of then focusing on maybe what, what did it look like if we were to move to America and how did that feel? How did it taste? You know, you go through all the senses basically. And that was kind of when it all started. Yes, we were uncles and, yes, we had a business, but it wasn't satisfying. Like it we both looked at one another and thought, this is just ridiculous. We're not really moving forward. We could just be the same people and stay mm. here for the next 10, 20 years mm. and not change and just be, you know, narrow-minded, not narrow-minded, but just, you know, insular. Um, the thing that we loved about New York was that no one gave a fuck. Like you just, you could do anything you wanted to and there was a niche there for you. Like you would never have to worry about that. So but people don't criticize. No. And that was the other thing too, that we would always get criticized, you know, like, Oh, look at, look at those two, they're all Gucci Prada. And you know, it's that whole thing. And it's just, it's not that at all. It's just about enjoying things and really appreciating well-designed, well-made things. But yeah. you know, you get dressed up when we still get dressed and you know, we're always well-dressed and, because we enjoy it and, you know, we'd come to New York and you'd be standing at the lights and someone would go, oh, man, they're a great pair of shoes you've got on, like, you know, a great look. Or, and then you go back to Sydney and nobody would be like, oi, fag, and you'd have to quickly run before yeah. you get beat. I know. No, it's just a sharp contrast between yeah. people saying how, you know, nice you look or how good do you look or whatever as opposed to criticism back in Australia. There's that yeah. whole tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. And and even goes down to work. Like if you're successful in America, people want to be attached to you. Where if you're successful in Australia, people are like, no, he only got there because his mother did or because, you know, it's never, oh, well, you know, congratulations, you really worked your fucking ass off. Like, and yeah. look, that, that <laughs> might have actually changed today. So anyone listening in Australia, um, if we we've apologize. upset you, we apologise. <laughs> this is what we had found out, found yeah. when we were trying to make our way in Australia, you know, pre-2010. It was just, it was a very difficult moment and very difficult time. But I think we both realised we were never actually absolutely. meant to be there. Exactly. I, See, it's yeah. about reading the signs. Yeah, um, and, you know, and, and 
you know, some people move to Australia because they love it and other people move out because they don't. You know, everyone. Exactly, yeah. You know, people, you know, and I'm saying Australia's bad or good or, you know, anyone's better than anybody else. But the thing is it just didn't suit either of us. And yeah. being a couple, we started, we realised that really we really wanted to be in New York. We just had to make it happen. And so we, you know, it took us a long time to work it out, but we finally worked it out. And, yeah. And again, yeah, no, I can relate to that. Moving. Yeah, if you're moving on the right path, things will happen. I had two great job offers by different companies, excuse me, um, here in America that were phenomenal. I was really quite shocked that I actually got offered these amazing roles to head up colour departments. Um, but for whatever reason, we couldn't get anyone to rent our space in or take over um, the salon. So we couldn't let go. So we couldn't let go, right? And we're like, okay, this is not working and, you know, it, we just couldn't get it to work. And then finally Craig said, oh, you know what? I think I've worked out a way to move over there. If we set up a company and then just like that, everything just fell into place. Someone yeah. wanted to lease the building. Um, it, it just, within a matter of, I think it was two months, everything just clicked and just yeah. happened. That was meant um, to and, be. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and so from that moment, the moment we sort of realised that, we're like, right, okay, well, I'm not going to work for anyone. I'm going to work for me. Um, and we're, we're going to do this together. So everything that we do here right now in Sydney, and I think this was 2009, I think it was like a year before, uh, we had to work out what was um, being served for teas and coffees, what music was being played, what scent was in the air, um, just everything. Like how we're going to how, do how, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, marketing, run the database, you know, everything just... And then what was it going to look like and what we, you know, what would we take with us and what wouldn't we take with us? We knew we'd take a 20-foot container. It was mm. cheaper to take everything we owned than rebuy everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. So shipping yeah. a container with only $12,000 as opposed to buying all new. All we had to do was buy, you know, selling equipment in terms of a basin. <clears throat> so, um, so, yeah, so we just knew exactly what we wanted to do. We didn't even think about you know, the fact that no one knew us. So we had, no, no, actually, that, we actually, had, you know, we had no clients or anything. No, none of that even ends. That wasn't even a thought. We just decided we we're going to, we we're going to do this. And, so so you, you, you know, didn't, you didn't work for someone else first. You just went straight in, opened up your own salon. Yeah. You know, what, yeah. right. I know it's kind of crazy. I look back on that now and just think, wow, that's really. And no Instagram in those days. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think, I think I just knew, right. That I just, it was going to happen, um, and it, it that that was all there is to it. Like it just had to happen. Okay, so uh, how did how did you build a client base? You've arrived in New York, you know no one, and you're going to well, work. You knew, you knew well, what? we knew a couple. We knew a, ha right. a handful okay. of people, right? So we had a triplex. Um, so we had this killer rooftop. So every Saturday we'd have a party, and we'd invite the people that we knew. They'd have to bring five people that we didn't know, okay. and then every weekend we'd actually keep doing this until the the circle just became bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's kind of how we, you know, tried to work out how we could, you know, sort of and let everybody people. Let everybody know that we, you know, what he did and everything. And so he kind of got clients from a friend of a friend and, you know, um, you know, even an old girlfriend from school days, well, not my school, but, to a girlfriend, Anna, she found us through, you know, these connections and she's become a really close friend of ours. Um, so, yeah, so Anna then brought her girlfriends along because she liked what was going on with her hair. And so that was him, but he got his first big break um, at the end of our first. Well, we opened 
probably third quarter of 2010 because our shipment was delayed. And um, we've been open probably a month or two. Well, we, we'd had a soft in America. You tried to, um, we were trying to open by um, beginning of June because uh, that's that's technically when everything was supposed to arrive. So we would have, we figured we'd have six weeks before everyone would leave New York and go to Manhattan um, and go away, but that didn't happen. We ended up kind of doing a soft opening at the end of July um, and just sort of catching a few people here and there from their trips from, you know, the Hamptons or the holidays. And that's when we opened in um, uh, the third quarter. And then, okay. you know, and so everyone comes back to town, you know, New York comes back to life after Labor Day. And we started, you know, emailing. We're trying to find people's email addresses. Oh, and edit. yeah, yeah. So we're emailing editors and magazines and saying, you know, doing a press release and oh, trying no, to hook no, people. No. We rewind, rewind. So I completely forgot that bit. So in that time, we were actually painting. We're doing all that stuff in the salon. Um, and in Australia, I never had a website because it was it was a very secret thing. Like you just came across me. Someone gave you their my card and that was it. <laughs> and in New York, I was like, huh, okay, so... No one really knows who I am. Best I get a comp card ready, right? So do a comp card. Um, and then we're trying to work out the um, email off the mastheads and <laughs> could not work it out because every masthead has a like a code to try and get through and break into. Um, and finally I broke into a couple of people's, like got their email address and sent it through, but nothing. And then I was thinking, okay, well, what do we need to do now? We need to set up a website. So I want the website to look and feel like the salon. And it, it kind of was just, we're just going through the motions and just backwards and forwards having a conversation. What do we need to do? How do we need to do it? How do we get it out there? And, you know, how do we get someone, some of these people to come in? Um, and so I started baking, of all things. Um, and the few people that I did actually know, I would actually go down to their office and I'd bake them like these gluten-free Beets, beetroot, chocolate cakes with tofu icing. It sounds disgusting, but it's really delicious. Um, and I would bake these tiny little cakes and I would yeah. give them to them and be like, hi, you know, um, we talked on the phone the other day. I'm Greg. I've just moved in from Australia and, you know, I'd really love to um, have a chat to you. And they'd be like, okay, first of all, this is really weird. You're giving me a cake. And again, remember, people, this is 2010. So yeah. it's very pre-Instagram. Yeah. Facebook's yeah, so only just started. Facebook's like three years old or something. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, I'm 35 and I have a very short window to do what most of my peers had done from their 20s. I had maybe five years, if that, to kind of get as many people through the door as I possibly could before mm -hmm. I turned 40. Um, and then it actually worked. One of them booked in for um, a blowout and came in. Oh, no, no, no. That's right. She called me and said, I have a... Um, uh, I, I have a, a really bad situation here. I just had my hair colored. It's really disastrous. Can you see me? Sure. What time? Um, well, I need to do it early morning. Okay, I can do 6 a.m. for you. What do you mean 6 a.m.? Well, you want early. Like, what time is early for you? And so we eventually settled on 8 a.m. Now, again, 2010, um, New York. Most people open at 10, 11, 12 and finish at 6, 7 or 8. Mm -hmm. um, no one was doing the hours that I was doing. And mm. for me, it was basically just trying to get as many people through the door as I could. This girl that I did ended up writing a story for New York Magazine um, announcing our arrival. So, Greg, are these, are these beauty editors and stuff? Like you're, you're yeah. emailing the beauty editor yeah. once yeah, you crash trying to, for her email address, then you're rocking up. With, <laughs> with a, cake. a homemade cake into the office. 
I mean, they must have thought, who is this guy? Who is this fuckwit? Yeah, but they paid attention. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing. um, We got a call from someone doing like a a fact check and I was like, whoa, 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 wait, wait. Who is this and where are you from again? And that's when I was like, huh, okay, this is kind of interesting. Um, And, you know, that kind of started the first role of people coming through and that was really lovely. Um, I sort of got quite a few clients from that. And then Christmas happened and that was really lovely. We had our first white Christmas Um, and then we turned the corner into February and then all of a sudden um, phones started ringing and then the phone was really ringing and then it was ringing off the hook. And I was like, Craig, get your ass down here. I can't answer the phone and do hair. Like, this is crazy. Anyway, finally, I picked up the phone because he was busy doing something. And one of the clients said to me, uh, one of the clients said to me um, that you don't know what's going on, do you? And I said, no, what's what's going on? She said, you've just been named best blonde in New York. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, to which I thought to myself, hang on, wait, what? And so I jumped online. Oh, Craig, can you just do that Yep, um, I jumped online and had a look and saw that I was best blonde in New York, which is the most bizarre thing. Hang on. So what, you had done someone's hair who, like one of these beauty editors, and you'd fixed up her blonde, and then she's gone and written an article and titled you the best best blonde. No. Editor. No? Sorry. My apologies. So, so what happened was she wrote an article announcing um, my arrival um, into New York in September of 2010. Um, and that was just it. And then New York magazine has the best of, um, edition and they do, they list the best of everything in New York for that coming year. And, um, this particular year they listed best blonde, best brunette, best redhead. Um, and I was listed as the the best blonde. Um, and when I asked her how this happened, she said, well, what they, I don't know if they still do this today, but they put um, they put everyone's name in a hat essentially, and um, rummage it around, and then send out their secret spies. And then they they have the list of services, um, and it goes from there. So I was very shocked that it hadn't even been a year that yeah. you know we were here and then really? this used to happen. Less yeah. than a year. That is fantastic. I'm be- I bet the cake helped. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the funny thing was, and you know, this is this is again the thing that you just got to not listen to what other people are saying. At this point, when we've moved to America, the Australians that we did know from Australia who moved over here, we started hearing them saying things like, who the hell do these guys think they are? You know, they just, they've moved here, they don't know anybody, and they're setting up a salon on a fourth floor walk-up. And my advice to anyone at this moment is just to have faith and really, you know, dig deep and really just keep pushing because the more you push, the more you'll get rewarded. Yeah. So that salon, that was your home as well? Yep. yep, indeed. Right. So, so it was, it was an apartment. You use part of it as home, part of it as a salon. And it was over three levels. Yeah. Uh, oh, why? Right. Okay, okay. So, so on the first, the third le- on the third floor, we walked in. So it was a walk up in an old townhouse. Yeah. Um, and so the salon was on that floor, and, and our reception everything. And then the next floor up was our where we lived, and the next floor was a rooftop. Okay. So there was us, and our two dogs we brought from Australia. And, okay. um, and we thought we'd be there for a long time till we bought something in, in New York. But um, we had a two-year lease, and at the end of that two-year lease, I wanted to start negotiating with the building owners to renew the next two years. And they wouldn't meet with me, and it went all very strange and silent. And suddenly we were slapped with eviction notices. 
And there was a very strange legal loophole they pulled in that if they own the building and want to move a relative in, they can cancel your lease. And so they did because they were selling the whole row of townhouses. Okay. Um, six of them for a development. So those mm. townhouses, and they got rid of everybody in all, all the townhouses. So we just finished renovating the second bathroom because we thought we were going to be there for 10 years and um, and we had to try and find somewhere to, to, to move. So we lucked out and found a grander townhouse space up on um, East 37th Street in Murray Hill and um, uh, where we lived downstairs and we had the salon on the parlour floor with extremely high ceilings and fireplaces. So we've gone from, you know, acute interior to a grand interior and we already had one staff member, an Australian girl, and so we moved in there and, and the business grew. We had, you know, doubled our rent <laughs> in, in one year and so we had to make it, make it, you know, pay for itself. So okay, um, I was going to ask no, you about staff. So uh, you didn't have staff in the first location, but you did in um, the second. We at the very end of the first location, um, I, I it was just too much. I actually was. We were turning away clients because we yeah, it was actually I I shut my books after two months. The three months I'd actually I was not taking on any new clients. And the yeah. thing is, it actually just kept going from there. Then I got onto Allure's best of list and then uh, got into InStyle's best of list so that it just kept going and going and going. And, you know, I was like, shit, man, this has got to really stop. I can't, I, there's, I don't have enough hands. And then this Australian girl approached us and I was like, yes, please, when can you start? I'll sponsor you. I don't care. <laughs> um, and that's kind of how it started. And then, you know, she then took on the new clients and then, you know, then, uh, we got another person when we're on 37th Street. But, yeah, initially it was just myself for like a year and a half and then yeah. for the last six months of our location on 18th Street, we had uh, employed an Australian girl. Right, okay. And in the new location, uh, did you have location. to – I know you just said it was double the rent. Did you, did you start employing multiple staff members or did it always, you know, relatively really. small? No, it was always, we kept it small. It was just the two of us there for a while. I was trying to find somebody else and I couldn't. It was all, it just it was very difficult. I ended up finding another guy um, who works there casually, but we started looking at doing other things. So I was trying to work out how to diversify and try and offer different things that people weren't offering. Um, so I, where we were on 37th Street, in the back of the, the business was a room. Now, in this particular area, it's all medical um, suites So uh, in the townhouses. So on the ground floor, they're like medical offices. So in the back of ours, we actually set up an injectables room. So uh, this is now 2013, I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah. So no one's really doing injectables in a hair salon at this point. Now, it's not what you think. There's someone not at the basin, you know, <laughs> putting um, injections into someone's face. It's actually a private room at the very end of a hallway. We have a medical mm-hmm. office. Yeah. So yeah. there was yeah. it was very sterile, very safe, very clean. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, weirdly enough, another Australian. Yeah, and that's kind of where we started producing more revenue um, mm-hmm. because you know there was only one of me and one of my other staff members. I didn't want to be cookie cutter conveyor belt salon. And really, um, you know, compromise my artistic integrity. 
um, and just rush people in and out. I still wanted to give people the same level of service um, that, you know, we'd always been doing before. So by having someone doing injectables, it kind of raised um, the profile a little bit of the space and also um, gave us another revenue stream. Okay. So this is like Botox and fillers and this sort of stuff. Yeah. 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 Right. Okay. All right. Um, Craig, you've already touched on this and and I sort of have alluded to it a couple of times in that it is the design aesthetic of your salons, the the art, the pieces of furniture, the the ornaments. I mean, you've got this immaculate taste. And so really what I want to ask you about is what, what are your thoughts about what a salon should look and feel like? Because there's there's room for all different types of salons, you know, and, and a lot of them are that sort of, you know, white box, um, you know, interior and they're functional and they're, they're busy, you know, workhorses, so to speak. But when I look at your salon, the only way I can describe it is it's like going into a really beautiful living room that's been immaculately um you know, decorated with with phenomenal right. pieces of furniture and art and ornaments, et cetera, on the walls. And 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 that's what you've got as a salon going on. So, you know, just talk to me about that because I love I love what you do. I mean, when you look at it on Instagram and you look at all those, I, I, I checked out some things yesterday on Vanity Fair. Um, and, you know, you obviously made some serious cake for the girl at Vanity Fair because you've got some, some great <laughs> coverage there. So, so just tell me about that, Craig. What, what, are your, what are your thoughts about your whole ethos about design and what a salon should look and feel like and what that experience should be for clients? Well, gosh, I mean, Helen's piece of string. It's the same for doing interiors for clients. Every, I think every salon has to really represent um, the owners of the salon. And I think that's, um, and that's what I try and do for my clients with their homes. Like I don't have one style. I mean, I obviously have a preferred style for myself, whatever that is, but, um, but I'm not one for having, you know, you know, the, what they call the Hamptons look or, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I try and give my clients what I think they really want to have for their environment, whether it's a country house or a city apartment or, or, you know, an office, I'm doing an office for a client in Greenwich at the moment. Um, and, and one of the things they wanted to do was make it more personable rather than like a typical, clear, you know, clinical office. And I think it's the same for salons, I think. And I don't mind some of those white boxes. I mean, probably one of the most famous white boxes was Helmut in Sydney by Tina England. I mean, what she and her partners did, the design for, you know, that salon was revolutionary. And... You know, you've got to admire that. It was it was clever and still stands up today, quite frankly. So I'm I'm a, I I like a lot of design environments, but I think you have to find what's important for you as a salon owner or a salon operator, and what you're trying to the clients you're trying to attract to. Like what the environment you produce will attract a certain type of client. Yeah, and so our very lush layered luxurious look that we go for is because that's the clients we're after. We're after those high profile clients who want to have an experience and prepared to spend the money to do that. You know, we, we're not at the bottom end of the, end of the, of the price charts, we're at the other end. And so, you know, to be there, you, you're like a hotel, you, 
you if you set a certain standard in a hotel, people know immediately from looking at the hotel, either online or through Instagram, mm. what that experience is. And, and therefore, they understand that that's going to come at a price immediately from the imaging. And so they're not surprised when they go to book that hotel or restaurant that it's at the HRM because they can see it. And so that's what we've done with our, our salon. But on the same vein, you can still give your clients a great, in, you know, sell environment and experience. And it doesn't need to be, you know, high-end, you know, fit-out and fixtures. It's, again, like restaurants or hotels that, you know, you design with, with your client in mind. What can they afford? What is it those clients at that level will want from an experience? And, we, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're spending a little bit of money or a lot of money. Everyone still wants the same thing. They still want to be treated well and, you know, have a great experience. But, you know, everyone knows that it's, it comes at a price for whatever you're going to get for that level. But there's still just little things you can do, like just how you present, you know, in a glass of water. Like, does it have a paper straw? Does it come with a napkin? Do you put a slice of lemon in? You know, just they're all the things we think about. We go right, break it right down to what's the client going to think when you hand them, you know, a cup of tea? You know, it's not a tea bag in a teacup or a chipped mug. For us, it's a tray with a matching teapot and tea service and jugs and, you know, little spoons. And, you know, does the spoon colour match the trim on the console? So currently we've got a brass pull on the console, so the teaspoons are now brass. Mm. You know, or gold, matte wow. gold. So we we really think through the whole experience mm. for the client. But you can do that on a lesser level. And you don't have to spend a lot of money. No, either. it's actually you, the devil is in the detail. The devil yeah. is in the detail because you know, especially here in America, the amount of well-designed product at, at a lower level is. I mean, I just and this is you know trade secrets, but I just bought some nightstands, pair of nightstands for a high-profile client from Target. <laughs> because they were beautifully designed and and well priced for this country mm. house project we're doing for them because mm. it's a temporary home for two years while they build another home. Yeah. And we're trying to keep the budget at the lower end, but they still want to have a great experience for the next couple of years while they're in there. Yeah. And so we found a beautiful dresser from another supplier that had this fluted detail, but we couldn't find the matching nightstands and weirdly enough found them at Target for $150 each. I mean okay. But you the know, key, the key word is for you is it's about luxury. It's a luxury experience that you're offering. It is a luxury people, experience, yeah? but it's also it's about as Greg said, the devil's in the detail. You know, yeah. I've I found these you know target nightstands that match a high end dresser, the same front drawer detail. Yeah, by two entirely different manufacturers, and now yeah. I've got a suite of furniture that look almost like they match. And you know, you, when you say for selling, you can do that too for buying salon chairs or basins or, you know, glasses for water or chairs to sit in or artwork for the walls. It doesn't need to be expensive. You just need to think about what does it look like? Is it, you know, is it? And what am I saying by putting that yeah, particular piece? Yeah, what there? am I trying to? It's like when you do your Instagram page or your web page, what are you trying to relate to your clients? It's the same for your interior, for your salon. Okay. Um, and, you know, and, and for us it's always about, being very ordered and neat and tidy and clean and you know I hate when well, I'm saying that with a bookshelf book of shelves full of books behind us here but I really do hate clutter even mm. though we have it layered it's not I don't like it clutter I everything has to have a place 
Yeah, yeah. Is um, is everything for sale? Because I know in one of your salons for sure that everything was for sale. Or that's what I read. It, is that well, still? It, well, not not anymore. It was, and mm. and that was Fifth Avenue. That became because um, actually that became because we had a we actually decided we were going to do Fifth Avenue differently, and we decided that we'd have a a, a group of board members. Um, to help navigate us from being small space into this high-end luxury. And we had some industry leaders, um, and this particular person who said this, I can't actually mention his name because I can't think of it, um, said, everything that you have in your salon is so beautiful. I want to know where I can buy that from. Have you ever thought of selling it, selling it and making it for sale? And that's kind of where it all came from. We also created a big retail area for the business. Um, we had this kind of long hallway between the the elevator opening and where the reception desk was and this hallway to get down to the front room on Fifth Avenue where all the chairs, salon chairs were. And um, and so we created this retail space. And so we had, you know, obviously hair products, but then we went into designing and manufacturing hair accessories and we um, brought in pieces of jewellery and things from other designers and so we had all these velvet lined drawers um, and the drawers were covered, lined with the same velvet that matched the sofa in the front room. So we kind of created this whole experience of being able to buy everything that was in the salon from hair accessories through to hair products that, you know, you could take home a vase. We had um, Fauna City, Fauna City um, mm-hmm. candles for sale. And then we took on perfume ranges from um, and unusual ranges of perfumes for men and gentlemen. Um, and everything in the salon was for sale as well. So, yeah. Sofas, armchairs, tables. It was interesting. <laughs> and, and, everything. and it sold. Okay. That was the yeah. interesting part. Yeah. I would say, oh, I love this sofa. And often I would end up not selling that sofa. I would order one for them, but it would be customised mm. for them. Okay. So from that it became, a, you know, a whole experience for them. So. Okay. And then you went, that was your second salon. And then again. That was our third. That, that was your third. Yeah, that okay. Was, was our third salon. That was the biggest we ever had. We had um, four chairs in the front room and a spare two out, one out the back where the basins were. So we had kind of two two yeah. rooms, and um, yeah, and we did a big fit out. We did a gut renovation. That one was. We didn't fit ourselves into an existing space. We actually took everything out and rebuilt it. Right. Um, and now we're back to way back to where we started from. We're in probably one of the smallest t- townhouses in New York City over on 27th Street next to the High Line. And is that and a conscious um, decision to go small again? It was. Very boutique. We, and- um, we finally got our green cards um, in 2019. Well, no, not physically our cards we were approved and after a couple of years of processing. And so finally we could do anything we wanted to because we'd been restricted by this E2 visa we moved to America on. So suddenly I could go into my back into my design practice, which I couldn't do before under the E2 visa. I could only work for Ruggieri LLC. So, um, and we realised we didn't have to have this big machine where we had to prove ourselves for the E2 interview every four years. So we decided we weren't going to renew the lease. We had another shitty landlord and the roof was leaking uh, again and causing us a lot of problems and the floor was buckling from the flooding and we couldn't get a resolution with him or the insurance company. And so we decided let's walk away from this and start all over again. And we found this little townhouse on 27th Street, zoned work live. 
Um, the ground floor is perfect for a one-man show. And um, we could live in upstairs. I could open my design office and have an office upstairs. So we moved there um, the end of, um, we got hold of the lease October. We did two months of fit out, shut the other one at Christmas, um, took a couple of weeks off. Greg's family were visiting from Australia, reopened beginning second week of January 2020. And then not even two months later, we were shut down thanks to COVID. We came up to our house here in Connecticut and, um, and then we went back and reopened in June um, 2020 and it was a completely different. We had to reshuffle the salon again during that shutdown because Greg couldn't even have an assistant. He had an assistant before. Couldn't have that because of the lack of space. We didn't fulfil the guidelines. So it was just him as a one-man show, so we redesigned the salon again for a one-man space. And um, and I set up my design business during the shutdown, and um, and here we are now, 2022, and I'm busier than ever, and he's a completely different thing. And he went off and did trichology during the shutdown as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So, what was that all about, Greg? You know, like you obviously a successful hairdresser, you got all that going on. Why did you decide to branch into becoming a trichologist? And I saw on your website as well that you've even got uh, a product of your own that is aimed in the trichology direction. So, talk yeah, to us about yeah. that. Well, it's one of those things that we all know. Um, Actually, no, we don't all know. So in Australia, and I'm not sure if it still is like this, in Australia you have um, the four-year apprenticeship, you go to college one day a week for two years, and they briefly sort of talk about different things. And then you can also um, go back to college and do like summer school, if you will. And so I did um, trichology because I was really interested with the whole scalp thing. Um, I ended up dropping out because the whole oozing of the scalp thing really just made me want to throw up. Um, and I just I could not handle it at all. But then um, I started noticing, um, even before COVID, I just started noticing like clients losing hair and just going through that whole thing. I thought, wow, I don't actually have the answers. Like I can talk till I'm blue in the face about breakage, you know, mechanical damage, chemical damage, blah, 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 blah. But the other thing that always interests me is all the different um, things that happen to people when they are under the influence of drug and alcohol, what happens to their hair or right in the middle of a female cycle, you know, I can't bleach someone's hair because there's too much crap in their system and I'm not going to be able to bleach their hair up to white enough. So I wanted to actually get proper answers um, from all of this. So when COVID happened, I was like, right, okay, I'm now moving into the next phase of my career where it's just going to be myself what is it that I can do and what is it that I want to do to put another, you know, feather in my cap or another tool in my tool, tool belt? And so that's when I came up with trichology. Um, and I started doing the first introduction. It was a three-part thing. I did the first one, just saying to Craig, you know, I just want to get a little bit of background into this. I'm not going to go all the way. Don't worry. Um, and did the first one. I was like, wow, this is actually really interesting. And so... We had a chat and then I continued going and then just finished it um, finished it up. And, um, yeah, it's post-COVID. It's kind of interesting because the COVID really affected the hair in like a, a, an autoimmune way in that, you know, a lot of people were, were losing their hair. But more importantly, before, like three days before they would actually be diagnosed with COVID, they all complained of like hot spots in their scalp and then literally three days later would get COVID and then 
uh, four weeks later would come to me because they had like this huge clump of hair missing, like a, a, an alopecia spot. Wow. So that really fascinated me. Um, and so I ended up writing a paper on it. It was kind of cool. Amazing. I, I hadn't heard yeah. of that before. That, that was a, a yeah, it's, yeah, well, that was in the very early beginnings. That was kind of how we would start realising that there was something else going on. Like we kind of worked out it was an autoimmune thing. And even today, like um, post-COVID, people who have had COVID, um, their hair just reacts completely differently. Um, and also vaccinations as well. Um, you know, the hair reacts differently. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's a very interesting thing. It just basically gives me more authority. You know, the other thing too is I am now over 45. Um, and there comes a point in your career when, especially as a guy, right, you get to 40 and then people start looking, if we go back to the beginning of our conversation, when I was talking about being the younger one and then the older person. So now I'm the older person and now no one's wanting to do anything with me um, in terms of working because I've now hit that age. So now they're going to people who are a lot younger in their 20s or early 30s. But by having this trichology under my belt, I now am an authority um, in all things here. So now I get people asking me, to comment on, you know, all different types of things, all different aspects of hair, hair loss, hair colouring. Um, and because I have the trichology um, degree, it's kind of just opened up a whole new world that I never thought possible. Wow. Another thing which we touched on before we pushed the record button, um, and you mentioned this and you didn't say it in jest, you were 100% serious, uh, was about the idea of training more as a counsellor or psychotherapist or whatever. Yeah. Do you, do you yeah, want to talk yeah. to us a little bit about that? Because I thought that was really interesting. And I don't know how much of that was to do with COVID or how much of it to do was was to do with the, the intimacy of the service that you offer, that it's very much one-on-one. -on -one. There are no assistants. There are no other clients. It's just you and that client at a high price point and, you know, that the conversations, well, I don't want to take the words out of your mouth. I'll leave that up to you. So um, talk to us about that. Yeah, it's been an interesting process to watch. I've always had a close relationship with my clients. Um, as most hairdressers, we all, we're always told things that we wish we weren't. Um, <laughs> And, you know, affairs and different things like that. But now being in a one-on-one -on -one environment where it is just myself and the client and being in my home, the client will literally come in and just sit in the chair and just take a load off, you know. And most hairdressers know the moment you start playing with someone's hair, it's like, it's like Pandora's box, you know. You just you start pulling their hair a bit and all of a sudden they just unload and they just unload in the weirdest ways and the most peculiar ways um, and also the most nicest ways as well to the point now where I think I might have to go and do a, um, a degree in psychology just to really understand different things um, that people will ask of me and you know sometimes I yeah best to respond yeah <laughs> sometimes yeah. I'm like oh, I don't know if I could actually respond to this because if I do then I might actually get sued somewhere down the line yeah. Um, or just to be able to, right? Or just to be able to listen without wanting to slap them on the head. Like, are you kidding me? Why are you talking like this? Like, you're crazy. Um, it's just, yeah, it would be interesting to get a, a, another opinion just so I, I knew that I had another tool in my tool belt that yeah. would be able to handle this situation, you know, that arises. And I think you're right, post COVID um, and post lockdown, a lot of people. Are more have, stressed, yeah, are more stressed. 
and have changed or have not changed. You know, a lot of people are dealing with frustration and anxiety for being locked away or for having two years of their life taken away. Um, and so it would be nice to be able to have, you know, the tools to be able to assist them. Um, yeah. And ultimately that's our job, right? So that was one of the things with the trichology that I really wanted to help my girls who are going through menopause, you know, hair loss with um, um, having babies and, you know, just the whole thing and cancer. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, and that's the other thing there's post COVID, there's a lot more people who have now because they missed um, doctor's appointments and things. There's cancer that it's actually gone a lot further than where it should have gone because they weren't able to get treatment. Mm -hmm. So I've actually been finding that, um, I, I've been dealing a lot with people with cancer, um, and that's kind of been very heavy, um, trying to work out what to say, what not to say, step back from that as a hairdresser and step in as a friend or step away as a friend and step in as a trichologist, you know, really try and work out the boundaries and what sort of boundaries mm. need to be set in order to fulfill my service and my, my job. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. We we don't have long left, but there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about. One of them was uh, social media. Uh, I think I mentioned that I, I thought that your Instagram feed is, is beautiful. It's very stylish. I mean, and it's not just pictures of haircuts and stuff. There's all sorts of stuff in there, uh, which, which I absolutely love. So I recommend everybody uh, should check it out. But what I wanted to ask you about is, I know when you opened the business that, you know, Instagram didn't even exist. And of course now it does, and it's a big part of everyone's life. And, and you obviously spend some time on it. Uh, how important is social media to your business today? It's a very interesting question. <laughs> um, a question that I'm actually struggling with at the moment, because due to the current environment of stuff and crap that's going on in the world and just everything going on, I kind of feel like it's not really important. Um, if I can be completely honest, I just find it really frivolous and meaningless. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't know. I just, I, I, I'm very much, we went to, okay. So we went to see a Dior exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum. And when I walked in, um, all I noticed was everyone was on their phone looking at the exhibit through their phone. And I just thought, wow, we're not living in the moment. Yeah, um, yeah. And this was back in, you know, February, I think it was. And it was, so it was all about them collecting stuff for their feeds. Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's kind of it is a little bit hard. I really struggle with it. Um, how much do I get from it? I actually get nothing. I don't get clients from my social media feed. I don't mm. post pictures of my hair on my social media oh, feed because no. they're my clients. And I don't really I don't want to ask them if I can post a picture of a service that they're paying me for. Mm. You know, I kind of feel I feel awkward. I feel like morally I couldn't do that because you've just paid me X number of dollars for me to do your hair, only for me to take a picture and put it on social media. Now, other people might disagree with me, but for me, um, I just can't, I just can't do it. It's not, it's, it's, it's not my style. I don't yeah, do that I, kind of I stuff. Totally understand. Like, so who yeah. does yours? Do you do it or does Craig do it? Oh, no, no, I do it. I do, do the whole it? thing. Right. Yeah, okay. yeah, but at the moment I haven't been doing um, – I've been really slack because I just can't find anything meaningful to post. And I think I'm over the hurdle. I've, I've done some soul searching and I think I think what uh, Instagram is is something that's just basically um, – it's like a distraction from every day to day, right? So, yeah, it's kind of – it's. I feel like it's, it's good. I try very hard to kind of – get people to have a glimpse of our life and what we do. 
and how we do it. I wanted to basically make the Instagram feed feed look like what Craig's um, life is and my life is either here in Connecticut when we travel or just the different things that we like or aspire to. Yeah. You know, it's, I guess, yeah. This question is it's one of those really sort of open-ended ones that you might have a really clever answer to in one sentence or, or maybe you'll say, well, how long have you got? Um, and it is, how would you define style? God. Um, yeah, well, stars, well because, because you haven't. <laughs> when, I, when I look at your Instagram feed and I, I looked at your, your holiday and you were in, where were you, in Istanbul or somewhere, and just everything you do is done with style. And I think that that is a, a wonderful thing to have. Um, and some of it comes with age and maturity, but not all of it. Um, so, so what great. would your definition great. be? <laughs> um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's funny. I, I – it's interesting. You kind of um, people say I get asked this question myself with work. Look, style is um, is something that's very personal to you. Um, you know, as they say, style is forever. Fashion is for but a moment, mm-hmm. and and that's um, and I think it's just I don't know. I think you either have it or you don't. It's a very hard one. I I, I look at Craig, and he is definitely the epitome of style. I mean, you can't see what he's wearing today, but he's just thrown something on and it's just, it annoys the crap out of me. He can put a paper bag on his head and he's still <laughs> stylish. So I think I think that's what style is, is that you actually can't pinpoint it. Um, you know, he's not struggling for words, but he just can't explain what style actually is because he has it, he oozes it, he does everything. Like it's it's, kind of you, it's the most bizarre thing. It's amazing. A lot of people have a style and they don't even realise it. That's, you know, I think that's, that's the sad part because I think some people inherently have a great style and they just yeah. appreciate what they've got. As an outsider, yeah. you can see it. Yeah, and so sure. I, because people say nice things to me, I always make sure I always step out, step off the curb and say something nice to somebody if they've got a nice pair of shoes on or they look really stylish. I'll I'll go and tell them like because yeah. I think you know I think it's good to let people know that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, look, we, we do need to start wrapping up, but I, I did want to ask you one thing before we before we do, and that is about this business unit of one. Um, all, over, all over the world, the industry is changing, and there's a lot more salon suites. There's a, there's a lot more smaller, you know, I refer to it as a business unit of one. Um, and it's done in varying different ways, and you've done it in a very stylish, very luxurious, you know, way and and people are prepared to pay for that and you attract a certain client base that you know enjoys the values that you and your brand express just talk to us a little bit about how you see that business unit of one that in terms of the hairdressing industry and and it's not really even a direct question but you know you will know what i mean when i say how there are salon suites you know, opening up all over the world, Australia, UK, uh, less so, um, very much so all across the US. And the way you've done it is sort of that, but it's not that at all. Um, what can you add to that conversation before we wrap up? I think it's a, it's a very interesting question, one that I've been watching for the last couple of years here in America. Um, so in America, what differs to everywhere else in the world is in America, you used to be able to just rent a chair um, and so it's, it's kind of essentially the same thing, uh, except 
you're renting a room. It's not really something that I necessarily would like to be a part of because I don't know. I don't, I, I, I just don't think that it would suit me or what I'm really wanting at this point in my life or my career. I think it's a, it's very early stages. And I think if we fast forward to like two years down the track, it's going to evolve completely differently again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, here in New York, post COVID, so many salons have, have closed down because they just mm-hmm. didn't make it. So those salon suites are great for those individual artists that only want to work like two or three days and they can just rent the space. Again, it's not something that I could necessarily go to because it's not really where I'm at at the moment, but I definitely see why people are doing that and why they're gravitating towards those sort of spaces because to set up something in New York is really expensive, but to rent a simple studio, you know. Um, Look, I think it doesn't appeal to me, but I think it's very clever and I think it, it, it serves a purpose for a lot of people, gives them a first first opportunity of running their own little business. Absolutely. So it's yeah. a good starter. I think some of them realise, you know, yes, this is great. I can go and do my own thing. I can continue, I aid to stay here and foster clients in that. Or they might take a bigger step and lease a shop front or a, or a loft space and, you know, grow it slightly. And others might realise suddenly, hang on, <clears throat> trying to n- navigate bookings and everything and everything else myself and run a set of books is complicated. I might actually want to go back to a salon where I just turn up and have my appointments and don't worry about it. Yeah. So I think it's a good, it serves a purpose. I think um, it has a long way to go. I think it's early days yet. Yeah. And I, I can see some avenues where it could go, quite frankly, um, if someone wants to give me some money. <laughs> I think, I think there's, there's, some, there's some areas of this business that, that could really be improved upon. Um, but I'm not going to tell you what they are at this time. Okay, well, we'll have to leave that for <laughs> we'll have to leave that for another podcast. Um, where, where, whereabouts can people connect with you on Instagram or other social media channels? After I've been talking all about your social media, etc., we must at least give people the opportunity to go and have a look at it. Okay, um, my Instagram is probably the best feed. It's just Salon Ruggeri NYC. So that is Salon as in Salon Ruggeri R U G. E-R-I, and then N-Y-C um, on Instagram. Well, I will put those links uh, in the show notes for today's podcast. If you're listening to this podcast with Greg Ruggieri and Craig Longhurst and have enjoyed it, then do me a favor, take a screenshot on your phone, share it to your Instagram stories, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. So to wrap up, Greg and Craig, thank you so much for being on this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. Any final words? Trust your instincts and just make sure you don't dismiss any uh, signs that might appear. And watch this space. There's another salon coming. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Well, there's an excuse to get back together further down the line. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. That's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Anthony. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.